Let's pray together, Father God. We are so uh, wowed by this amazing love, Lord. It sets our hearts at rest. We know, Father God, that we can rest in your love. Your Holy Spirit quiets our hearts with this amazing mercy that you show us. Mercy that's new every morning, God. Thank you for the endless supply because we have an endless need. And so, God, we are thankful for your long-suffering with us, that your blood cleanses us from all unrighteousness as we confess our sins to you and turn away. God, you are faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Thank you, God, for the peace that we have and we stand just simply by faith alone, through grace alone, through Christ alone. Nothing in our hands we bring simply to your cross we cling, God. The only thing we bring to the table is a messed up life, God, and that's what qualifies us, Lord Jesus. We need to be saved, and you are a savior, and so we cry out, God, Hosanna, Lord, save, and we thank you, God, for being true to your word, making it so easy, God. What is the work God requires of us? How can we be saved? Believe the one he sent. God, we can do that. Thank you. We trust in you this evening, God, now as we consider the cross upon which you bled and died to purchase men and souls for God. We pray, Father God, that as a result of our time together, reflecting on this beautiful, amazing love, that we would be changed more like you, more able to serve you, to be a blessing to you and to those around us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. amen. God bless you as you take your seat this good Friday evening. We have culminated here on Passion Week, and it's called Passion Week uh, for a reason. It's named for that passionate determination of Jesus to go to the cross, knowing full well all the horrors awaiting him. I mean, sweat drops of blood flowed just contemplating what it would require to, to take on the sin of the world, to remove it and rescue the souls of men. This uh, passionate determination was uh, really seen in a 700-year-old prophecy. Uh, Isaiah, again, only chapter 50. This time I have it uh, for you. Passion Week, here it is. 700 years before the passion happened. I offered my back, Messiah speaking, to those who beat me, my cheeks to those who pulled out my beard. I did not hide my face from mocking or spitting. But the Lord God, Father God helps me, therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. And then Luke, bringing our minds back to that ancient prophecy, as Jesus was heading to Jerusalem to suffer and die, when the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and there it is, that passion again, to set your face like a flint. This is a figure of speech, of course, and it just means this dogged determination, unwavering 
just really, you know, usually to persevere with some kind of difficult undertaking. And uh, yeah, he had this passion to make it happen. Uh, Jesus was not killed for his good work. As I always say, it was his good work to be killed. He was born into this world. Like he said in John 12, as the time drew near, he said, now the time has come. My soul is disturbed within me. What should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very purpose that I came. And he says it over and over again. He says in John chapter 6, I came down from heaven to give my life away. It's a ransom payment. A ransom payment for the sins of the world there in John chapter 6. And no devil in hell. And no fear of agony or torture is going to deter him from being the lamb who was slain from before the foundation of the world. This is something that was contemplated by God in eternity past. This is just not a fluke of circumstances. And so in Hebrews chapter 12, he tells us it was for the joy before him. He endured that cross. Oh, he despised the shame. He despised it. He despised the agony, the spitting, the mocking, all of it. But there was something deep in his heart, and that was joy, born out of a love, knowing that it was the only way to save us. And he imagined you and me with him forever, and that brought him joy, and that was really the passion to go to that cross. And so after three and a half years preaching the good news that there was a way to escape the wrath of God and live forever, um, and and all those miracles to validate his uh, ginormous claims, as I like to say, it's time for him uh, to do now what is required to make that promise a reality for those who believe. So he's promising eternal life, reconciliation to God the Father. He said, whoever believes in me will cross out of death and judgment and into life. Well, now he has to lay down his life and bear the sins of the world to make that potential a reality. And so as he is dying over the course of six hours, he's going to say seven things. We call them the seven last words or the seven statements from the cross. And we're going to take a look at each one of those uh, this evening. We'll have uh, the first two, and then there'll be a song, and then the next three, and then there'll be another song. And then the last two will serve as a a preface to our communion time together where you will be able to serve yourselves communion and there are stations all over and I'll explain that when the time comes. So seven last words. Everybody knows that last words are rather important. You know, the peripheral things are peeled away and uh, you cut to the chase. The things that really matter seem to come to the surface. So as Jesus is dying, we have a treasure chest of what's really important. Insights about who we are, who he is, the character of God, the heart of our Father. Insights from heaven 
that will set our hearts free, that explain more about our great and glorious salvation. And uh, he will show us how to live, and he will show us how to die. So let's get situated here. The scene has moved from the upper room, where John 13, 14, 15, 16, and into 17 deal with that one last supper. And we've moved from the upper room. Now it's Thursday evening, a mile up the hill, the Mount of Olives in the moonlight. Every single Passover and Easter weekend is a full moon because it's based on the Hebrew uh, calendar. And so to the Garden of Gethsemane. Now from the garden, the scene is going to move after he's betrayed and apprehended. Uh, we move back down the hill to the temple precincts, precincts again, and then we enter the courtroom of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court. Uh, it's past midnight now, and uh, two trials to come all night long, through the night, and then dawn, Friday morning. The scene moves from the courtroom chambers as Jesus uh, is now handed over to the Roman authorities. The Jews don't have uh, the legal right to put him to death, so they take him to Pontius Pilate. So the scene moves to the praetorium, which is a fancy word for the governor's house there in the temple complex there to be now arraigned before Pontius Pilate, who is nervous. He's apprehensive. His wife has had a dream. He's going to ignore her advice to have nothing to do with that innocent man. He finds Jesus innocent not once, not twice, but three times. But he succumbs to the mounting pressure of job security. And he reaches his decision. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. Pilate gives the word. Jesus is flogged. And a crossbeam that is 75 pounds is leaned against his bloodied shoulder for him to carry. And off they go. Luke 23, 33 through 34 is our first statement from the cross. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. No, this is the second word. We're going to go to the first word. I'm sorry. I Yeah. It's confusing because the numbers are very similar. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right side, the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. Statement number one is all about the sweetest word known to man, forgiveness. And uh, yeah, for the Roman soldiers, probably just another day they're carrying out their uh, duty here, uh, facilitating capital punishment on a couple thug murderers and a religious fanatic here, something they've probably done hundreds of times to execute justice, really, uh, for the state. And so... Uh, this day is a little bit different. Uh, even if they don't know it yet, they will know it soon. Uh, if we fast forward six hours, which is the length of time Jesus will be on that cross, uh, in Matthew 27 it says, when the centurion and those 
who were guarding Jesus, those who did the deed, saw the earthquake and all that had happened. The sun had stopped shining for three hours. We'll talk about that. They were terrified and exclaimed, surely he was the son of God, you see. But as for now, they're blissfully unaware, casting lots for his clothing. And why are they doing that? Well, to fulfill Psalm 22, for one thing. A thousand years before they did that, God said they're going to do this. And why are they doing that? Because he's a celebrity. He's been around three and a half years. And, uh, you know, Israel's not that big. It's the size of New Jersey. New Jersey's not that big. None of you know about New Jersey. You know, so I just thought I'd bring that up there. So, but now, you know, uh, they are rochambeauing for uh, the miracle worker's garments while nailing a human being to a cross of wood. Then hoisting it upright, the system of pulleys and ropes, maneuvering this great weight with a human being fastened to it by nails until that awful thud of falling into that hole that secures the base. And now the Son of Man has been lifted up, as he told Nicodemus, so he can draw all men unto him and have eternal life. That's in John chapter 3. Look to me, all the ends of the earth, and be saved, says the Lord. Isaiah 45, he is lifted up and drawing everyone to him. Come, come and live forever, says the Lord. Now, while they're in the very act of executing him with spikes through his hands and feet, and while the mallets are falling, Jesus begins to make intercession. It's why he came. He's the great high priest. And so, you know, as John described him, he said, I'm writing to you, dear children, that you don't sin. But if you do sin, we have an advocate. He speaks to the Father on our behalf. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1. We have one mediator, one mediator only, who speaks on our defense, the one who laid down his life and paid for us. Not only did he die for us, he died as us. And he speaks to the Father with the receipts paid for in full on his very body. He is our advocate. Uh, There was a woman who uh, took issue with me about saying we only have one mediator. And she was Catholic at the time before she joined our church. Uh, But she was visiting, and she came up to me, and I've told you about this before. Uh, Her name is Debbie, and uh, she came up to me, and she said, you tell me, you show me that one verse in the Bible that says I shouldn't be praying to Mary and asking Mary to help me. So I said, okay, right there. I grabbed her Bible and turned her to 1 Timothy 2, verse 5, and I always like to do this. I, I, I make them read it out loud. And, and so she read, There is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And to her credit, she goes, done. She goes, okay, I'm done doing that. <laughs> I'm done doing that. She goes, if there's only one mediator and the Bible says that, then I'm calling on the name of Jesus only. 
you know? And so, yeah, that's the way it is. You guys are feisty tonight. That's what I want to say. Yeah, so uh, there are just hundreds of prophecies being fulfilled uh, with everything Jesus does, you know, even interceding like he started to do right there. Isaiah 53 and verse 12, he was numbered with the transgressors. That means he was lined up with the criminals. There he is. And it goes on to say, he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the rebels. Well, what's he doing right then and there? He's making intercession. Father, forgive them. Painting them in the best possible light as they kill him. Oh, my goodness. If ever there was an example of loving your enemies. Isn't that exactly what he said? He said, quote, but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. He is not like the Pharisees and the Sadducees who he said in Matthew 23, don't follow them. They don't practice what they preach. Follow me. Follow my example. Because he does practice what he preaches and he's praying for those who persecute him. Persecute him to death. And there he is. Now when he says, Father, forgive them, um, who is who exactly is Jesus asking the Father to forgive? Well, first of all, forgive the self-righteous Pharisees and Sadducees who handed them over out of envy and forgive those who are like them, who have small little insecure hearts and are jealous all the time. Forgive his disciples for abandoning him. They all said at the table, we will never leave you. Oh, even if everybody else does, I will never leave you. And then it says, and they were all saying the same thing. It wasn't just Peter. So Father, forgive them. Because where are they? Hiding somewhere. And forgive all of the Christian disciples who lack a backbone. Forgive the liars at the hearing that stood up and made false testimony and forgive liars everywhere. Forgive the bailiff who gave him a bloody lip when he opened his mouth, punched him, and forgive all the violent abusers of others. Forgive Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, who pronounced Jesus innocent and then went ahead and did the wrong thing. And forgive everybody who knows the truth and does the wrong thing anyway out of selfish motives. Forgive them, Father. They don't really get it. Forgive the guard who flogged him. And all those who have given Christ and his people a verbal tongue lashing. It's not just those who did the deed he's praying that God would forgive, but for all those who caused the deed to have to happen. And that, sir, is you and me. Because of our sin, who killed Jesus? We killed Jesus. He wouldn't have to go to the cross if we weren't sinning. Father, forgive them. They don't have a clue. So does that mean they're automatically forgiven? No, it means they're eligible. It means that what he's doing can be applied to their account. In fact, that uh, Jesus reconciles to the world himself, right? To himself. And then he requires one thing. Trust in me. Yield your life to me in faith. The word forgive there means a fumi, 
which is uh, the Greek word, and it means to release or to loose from legal or moral obligation, to cancel or to acquit or to pardon of a lifetime of transgression. So my takeaway, one of uh, the only takeaways, we don't have time uh, to do much other than that, but listen, um, if we're getting a lifetime deal of forgiveness of sins, our takeaway is we have to be like Jesus and extend the forgiveness that he has given us. In fact, the Lord says some astounding things about those who refuse to forgive others. He says, don't you even expect God to forgive you if you aren't willing to forgive others? He says, it's just not the way it works. He said, did you hear the one about the guy who owed two million bucks? And he got thrown into debtor's prison. Him, he lost his wife. His kids were sold into prison as well. It was an awful scene. And he cried and he begged. And the master just was moved and forgave him $2 million. He gets out of prison. His life is restored. And he goes on into his life. And he finds a guy who owes him 20 bucks. And he grabs him and he strangles him. And he says, man, give me that 20 bucks. He gets him into all kinds of legal trouble over 20 bucks. He goes, truly, I tell you, the master found out about that and just rescinded the offer. Because anybody without forgiveness in his heart evidences that he himself truly could never have experienced the mercy and the grace and the love of God. A lifetime of your sins wiped out and then you hold someone else's feet to the fire? Jesus says no. No, doesn't work that way. He doesn't say it's not work to do it or it's a struggle, two steps forward, three steps back, but your heart is filled with love and gratefulness. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as Christ has forgiven you. Statement number two, now one of the criminals who hung there hurled insults is very violent at him. Aren't you the Messiah, Mr. Savior of the world? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God since you're under the same sentence? We're getting what we deserve, but he, uh, for we are getting what our deeds deserved. Uh, We are punished justly. But this man, he does nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered uh, him. Let's say it together. Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. If the first statement speaks of forgiveness, the second expresses assurance of salvation. Oh, my goodness, the mercy of God. In the middle of a hailstorm of mockery, uh, and someone, the least likely of all, comes to faith and experience this in, insane mercy uh, in this beautiful, well-known incident. Let's start, start with the mocking, all right? It's important to realize that at the start, they're both mocking. They're both hardened and hostile to the Lord. Uh, let me quote Matthew 27 and verse 44. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him 
also heaped insults on him. Rebels with an S. There's only two. They're both hardened and hostile. And they're both, quote, heaping insults on him. They're angry, they're hateful, they're spiteful, and they're letting Jesus have it. But they're mostly, like Proverbs says, you know, a man's own folly ruins his life, but he blames the Lord. His heart blames the Lord. That's how it goes, and that's what they're doing sort of there. Uh, hurling insults, piggybacking on this guy here, the, the unbelieving thief, as it turns out. Um, he is hurling insults. He's piggybacking on what was just said by the crowds who are mocking Jesus. Uh, you know, we could use some saving here, Mr. Savior, uh, hurled in anger, hate, and intention to harm. And, and harm, those words did. Jesus is 100% human. Yes, 100% God. But he's living this out. He's a human being. And words like that, when you're down and out, I'm sorry, Jesus is hurt. He's wounded by that, that well-intentioned limerick that your mom taught you uh, to cope with a world filled with cruelty. You know, it's not very helpful. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never harm me. Uh, no, that's not true. That's not true. Mean-spirited words, they go deeper than breaking a bone. They just break your heart and wound your, your very soul. And he was grieved. The tongue has the power of life and death and these fiery darts with lethal intent hurling, flying at the sinless Son of God from every direction, everywhere, the crowds everywhere, in fulfillment of Psalm 22. I think I have that for you. But I'm a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults a thousand years before it happened, shaking their heads. It's quoted there in Luke. He trusts in the Lord, they said. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. They said those exact words. That's just amazing. So mockery, no... (laughs) Satan, the devil's name, means to slander. That's his strong point. His strong suit is just bringing a a fiery dart of lies and shameful, blasphemous words to hurt, to dig. And he's using evil mouths to launch those arrows at the Savior and so he is doing his deed. But mocking is part of the package of, that Jesus would have to deal with. And so, yeah. Uh, so let's dive in right here. The unrepented one is, is hurling the insults, which gives occasion for our beloved brother to reveal his newfound faith. I don't want to say beloved, but he was certainly anything but beloved. Right up to the last few minutes of his life as he was dying for his contemptible crimes he committed. The, Bible's call, the Bible calls them robbers. And uh, the word describes uh, highway bandits and uh, thugs who would sweep down like on the road to Jericho, some stretch of abandoned highway of desert where people were helpless and vulnerable. They'd sweep down on the caravan, rob them blind, and then leave them for dead. 
And uh, just so you know, neither of them would be hanging on a cross had they not murdered someone in the process. And so dreadful human beings, both of them, not the kind of people that you would imagine the Son of God promising a place in paradise. Paradise, by the way, is used three times in the New Testament to describe the place and presence and abode of God. It's a Persian word, Ram at Persia, uh, that described the lush royal gardens there, known for breathtaking beauty, eye-popping colors, delightful fragrances, trees uh, laden with fruit, and uh, usually kings would build elaborate terraces and and dwellings for themselves out of real gold and silver and precious gems. And they would incorporate water and rivers and waterfalls and exotic wildlife. And so these paradise gardens were among the wonders of the ancient world. So when Jesus picks the word, he's looking for a word that will best describe what heaven is like. And he chooses on purpose the word paradise. Hardly the place of reward for a violent thug murderer who just kind of caught on, saw the light, thought, ruh <laughs> and then had a little U-turn, probably born out of self-preservation. And now he has eternal life. This is pretty amazing. What caused him to make the little U-turn is what you, repentance means. Well, whatever it was, uh, I'd like to get it into a bottle and slip it into some people, people's <laughs> beverages around me and uh, you know, help them. Amen? Wouldn't you like to do that? Well, well, yeah, what was it? Well, well, we'll never really, we wouldn't know that he actually became a believer, you know, in the privacy of his own heart, except that true faith cannot remain concealed very long. And so he goes from mocking to defending. Suddenly, instead of mocking the Lord, he's rebuking his comrade in arms. Yeah, probably surprising himself. What's coming out of my mouth? You know, he just hears him going, save us, Mr. Savior. And he's like, shut up, dude. Like, what are you doing? Can't you see what I see? Can't you see the way he's dying? Can't you hear his voice? Can't you feel the love? Can't you? What's wrong with you? Why do you keep on going on? I'm least. The, there's a proverb that says, the fool senses danger and keeps going and suffers for doing so. But the prudent sense danger and take cover. He's prudent. He's a loser in every way, except right at the end, he figures out this is not good. <laughs> this is not good. And he decides to say something like, man, shut up, man. He, he is innocent, can't you tell, can't you? Just like how we got saved. Something about the voice. Something about that love. Something's pulling me. Something's happening to me. I don't even want it. <laughs> Sometimes. I don't even know. I don't. I'm resisting. I'm resisting. And it's just sucking me in. 
and he says, man, you need to be quiet. That man says, and then he just looks at him with a humble request, saving faith. Confession of sin is we deserve this. There's everything there. And he says, just remember me when you come into your kingdom. In other words, I have faith. You're going to survive this. You're going to survive your death. And after you survive your death, you're going to be crowned king, and you're going to be coming back, and I just want to seat at the table, question mark. And Jesus says, yes. In fact, today, you and me in paradise. This isn't going to happen. And by the way, point one and two is extra long, just in case you're starting to get nervous. <laughs> they're just, they're just, it just happened that way. Now, this isn't going to happen to him in his case. But what if he gets to heaven and one of the angels says, so tell me how you used your life. You know, what did God do in your life? Well, I disgraced my parents and I broke their hearts. I wreaked havoc wherever I went. It was a lying, thieving, conniving, no good cutthroat. Killed a few people because they had stuff I wanted. You know, other people work for a living, not me. I just kill people and take what I need from them. So yeah, and so that ended up, I was being executed. And while I was dying, gasping for breath, I heard this voice. And I'm like, whoa. Oh, hey, hey, I'm sorry. I didn't realize. Man, I'm turning. I'm going to change a heart. The sting of hell will be how easy it could have been to change your destiny from eternal loss to eternal life. In a flash, a choice to say, I'm turning. That's all. That's all he requires. Wow. No promises made, no vows taken, no good deeds wrought, no tears that we read about anyway. No nothing. No nothing except remember me when you come in your kingdom because I believe in you now. Done, Jesus says. You know what my takeaway is? I have eternal security because my salvation rests not on my good deeds or my effort, but on the mercy of God. Amen? Statement number three. John 19. When Jesus saw his mother there, the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother and everybody, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, okay, again, Here is your mother. From that time on, the disciple took her into his home. That's John, of course. And so uh, Mary is present and accounted for, and we're not surprised that she's there, uh, in Jerusalem for the holiday, the holy day. Uh, It was a family tradition, of course, and I'm quoting Luke chapter 2, Every year, his parents went to Jerusalem for the Feast of Passover. And so, yeah, and by the way, it's presumed that Joseph has already passed away. 
uh, before Jesus' ministry began. There's Mary, and uh, in the wider text, uh, there are friends and relatives named with her. She's in shock, of course, trying to reconcile everything in her head and her heart. Um, if anyone knows that he's supernaturally uh, conceived and is the son of God, it's her, right? But she's a human being. She's a mom. So I don't know anything more touching or, or gripping in the entire Bible than this heartbreaking picture, considering the agony and brutality associated with death by crucifixion. The prophet said that Jesus was so marred by the swelling and the beating and the crown of thorns that he was scarcely recognizable as human. And there is mom within speaking distance. Now, you know, I would think, I'm sure her friends said, Mary, no. No, you cannot go down there. And she would say, oh no, oh no, I'm going to be there. And it's just moving to think about that she made sure that Jesus would see her standing there. Uh, surely, as her heart is being ripped out of her chest, uh, Simeon's prophecy that she hid in her heart some 33 years earlier at Jesus' dedication when he was eight days old there in the temple, an old uh, godly prophet who was ministering in the temples laid eyes on the baby in Mary's arms and he, the Holy Spirit lit his heart on fire. And he said, hallelujah, I can die in peace. I've seen the Lord's salvation with my own eyes, just like you promised, God. This child is going to be the savior of the world. He will provide light for the nations and be the glory of his people, Israel. He's not, P.S., he's not going to be well received on the idea of suffering there. And a sword will pierce your soul too. Notice his choice of words, pierce. He's been pierced, his hands and feet. But he's not the only one who's going to be pierced, Mary. His body will be pierced, but your spirit, your emotions, your heart, a sword straight through. And so what's going on here with Jesus' words? Dear woman, here's your son. And John, this is your mother. As Mary's firstborn, Jesus is responsible by Jewish tradition uh, for her welfare. She's a widow. Provide a roof over her head, food necessities, and all of that. Not unlike most cultures, children are expected to, as the Bible puts it, repay their parents. First Timothy 5 and verse 4, this pleases God. Uh, we were in Japan, most of you know, we were missionaries for four years. Uh, they're in a, they have a complex system in place set up for every potential eventuality that you could imagine uh, for who's going to care for mom and dad. In most Eastern cultures, including the Middle East, uh, there's, a, there's a traditions in place everywhere except really the West. If, if you're a mom and dad, anywhere outside of Western civilization, you're good. You don't have to worry about much. 
But if you're in America or Europe, uh, you might have some troubles because uh, we don't share the same values as the rest of the world. Generally speaking, human conscience is in tune with the will of God clearly expressed in Old Testament and New Testament commands, honor your mother and father so that it may go well with you. Well, that's an interesting way to put it. And then, and then he takes it a step further by saying that you may enjoy a long life on the earth. Whoa. A commandment that's hooked to a condition. You want blessing? Honor mom and dad. Even if Oh, I don't see any even if here. You work through you work through the even ifs. Everybody's got even ifs. Everybody. Right? Even they had even ifs, didn't they? My, uh, mom and brothers came. Why? You're out of your mind. We need to collect him. They came to collect him because he wouldn't stop to eat, because he was just doing ministry all the time without eating. So mom and brothers come to get him. Because they, had, they said he lost his mind. And what about the brothers when their snide remarks in John chapter 7? Aren't you going to go up to the feast? You want to be famous? Right? Oh my goodness. And then there was that whole business with mom. She's hosting a wedding. They run out of wine. It's a disaster. And she says, you know, isn't it time for you to go public? That's exactly what she said. You need to go public, and you can start by fixing this problem. And he says, dear woman, of sorts, let me paraphrase, he was already going to do something, but privately. Because it says, he showed his glory to his disciples privately. It wasn't the time to come out publicly. So he has to tell her and put her in her place. I'm not taking my marching orders from you, mom. All right? You see? And, and so what? There are complications even in the immediate family of the Son of God. And he's not going to passively aggress her right now by just kind of not saying anything. He's going to get over it and honor his mother because it pleases God. And so that's exactly what he's doing there. He's saying, uh, from now on, John is going to be the son who takes care of you and watches over you. And uh, please consider her your mother, John. And from that time forward, she's the new member of John's house. And what a comfort. What a comfort for them. Uh, so this is what he's saying. Other, Others-centered, even while he's dying. You know, that's, we're not good at that. When, when we're overwhelmed and we're in crisis, uh, we're all about ourselves. You know, I wish I could help you, but I've got problems of my own right now, right? And, and Jesus didn't do that. No. He cared more about the people around him, their destinies, Father forgive them, his mother. She doesn't have a son anymore, John from the cross while he's languishing, while he's gasping for breath, he's thinking about someone else's welfare, not his own. We need to be more like him. Number four says this, and at 
three o'clock, Jesus cries out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, that's Aramaic, that's what he would have said in his mother tongue, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Of course, that is Psalm 22 in verse 1, the opening there. And so now this is where Jesus pays. This is the darkest moment in history because uh, accompanying uh, this cry has been three hours of darkness. And we need to talk about that because really... Um, it's not so much the physical death of Jesus that saves us. It's what happens during the three hours, really. Of course, the suffering and the crucifixion physically is part of the deal, for sure. But what really saves us is the three hours. The three hours, whatever happened, that he cries out at the end, it's already three o'clock, and he cries out, my God, my God, where are you? What's, what is this darkness about? And he knows the answer. He's just telling the world what's happening. It's a rhetorical question of sorts. Maybe King David cries out because he didn't know in the original context of the prophecy. Jesus knows exactly why he's forsaken because he's become our sin. He's become a murderer with nobody to protect him standing before God. As a murderer, he who knew no sin became sin. He was made our sin. He was made a curse and then put before God with no advocate. Vulnerable as a rapist, prostitute, murderer. Just the worst. Child molester just picked the worst of the worst. That's what he became. And God judged him. And how did everybody know? Well, he turned out the lights. And don't go looking for some natural explanation. Was there an eclipse? God doesn't need an eclipse. He doesn't need a dust storm. He doesn't need locusts. All these locusts just filled up. No, you know what? He who made the sun, he's got the on and off switch. He really does. He just brought a darkness like Exodus 10 which gave the Jews a heads up. This is judgment. Three days of a darkness of plague number nine in Egypt. Quote, a darkness that you could feel because it was the absence of light. First John chapter one, verse five says, God is light. So in the darkness, he's withdrawn. Life, he is life. In him we live and move and have our being. If he withdraws, what's there? It says of that plague that they couldn't see anyone. It was that dark. The light of the world had pulled back. And so they knew the three days of judgment is related somehow to the three hours of darkness, where Jesus is soaking up the wrath of God and experiencing hell in some horrific way that no human being will ever understand. He, uh, and, and this is what caused the sweat drops of blood, for sure. 
You know, he said, told his disciples in the garden, thinking about this moment there for three hours, separated for the first time in eternity to have a, a rift between God the Son and God the Father. He said, my soul is sorrowful unto death. I could die from the way I'm feeling, just from the way I'm feeling. Then he goes on, throwing himself on the ground. Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. Nevertheless, if this is the only way, your will be done. And then, quote, Luke 22, and being in anguish, he prayed even more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Why? Because Jesus himself called the essence of hell outer darkness and then that essence of hell the withdrawal of God's spirit swallowed him up and all of the sins of the world put on him can you imagine I'm looking at a packed house can you imagine just putting all of the lifetime of everybody's sins in this one little room on somebody? Then make it bigger to the city and the county and the state. But every single sinner that's ever breathed God's air from the dawn of time, God, the Son, was judged by God the Father, the horror, <laughs> unbelievable. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's concentrated, infinite, dreadful, unfathomable. Here Jesus finds no comfort of the Holy Spirit, no sense of the Father's presence for the first time, as I said. Uh, no voice from heaven. This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. None of that. Three times a voice from heaven. This is my son. I love him. Nope. Gone. This is not my son. This is some kind of monster. And I'm going to take my wrath out on him. How do you view your life in light of that? How you treat people, how you tolerate sin, the sin that cost him his life and put him in that predicament. Because when he was in that predicament, those particular sins that you keep around were put on him then why would we continue to have such a lackadaisical attitude about something that put the Son of God to death and crushed him? No more angels to come to his rescue as they did twice to strengthen him because he's become you and me. I love the song, I'm forgiven because you were forsaken. I'm accepted, you were condemned. I'm alive forever. Your spirit lives within me because you died for me and rose again 
So just like Psalm 22 starts out like that, but it resolves in the end that the sufferer becomes the victor. Uh, there is a little mix of hope here because he's at the end. It's been six hours and there, there's a hopeful twist in Psalm 22 and we're about uh, to see that because he has finished the work. Uh, the fifth statement later knowing that all was now completed and so the scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I'm thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it and put, it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant and lifted it to Jesus' lips. So notice, it was not the physical crucifixion that saved us. Part of it, but he says now, and he's breathing, did it, done, over with, paid. And he's about to say paid in full while he's living. So it didn't require his total death. He's trying to say that he experienced hell for us in some mysterious way. That was the heavy lifting part of the package. And, and so, yeah, he tasted death for us. Now, he's thirsty. Now, you know, can you even imagine? <laughs> can you imagine all that blood loss all night long? When's the last time he had something to drink? The, the last supper, right? All through the night, the interrogation, the beatings, the blood loss of the flogging, all day long, hanging on a cross. And, and you don't die of crucifixion, you die of suffocation. Slowly, as you no longer have the strength to lift and, and yourself up to get that breath. How thirsty. And he says, I'm thirsty. Well, now he can have something because they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, a different kind of beverage. This one's not alcoholic. This is vinegar. The different kind of drink. But he refused the first one, of course, because it was an intoxicant that, yeah, say, it was that, this second word's not even easier to pronounce. It was an anesthetic. <laughs> yeah. So Jesus said, no thanks. I'm doing this without any mitigating factors. I'm taking the full brunt of it. But now, he says, in fulfillment of a prophecy he's thinking of, that they gave, they put gall in my food and they gave me wine vinegar to drink. He's saying, it's time. I'm done. And he wants to moisten his lips. And he says, I'm thirsty. Have you ever been thirsty, thirsty? Yeah, I know. Yeah, you know what? Um, I was riding my bike, cycled out to Bodega. It was hot. I had some water, of course, but uh, I ran out at all the wrong times. And so there was no place to buy water. So I cycled to Point Reyes. It was on a long trip. And then I, I came up through Nicasio to Petaluma to come home the long way. And I had no water. I started getting, I was hallucinating. I was blurred, vision. Um, this is the first time Barb's hearing about it. <laughs> and I can say, I'm okay. <laughs> so there. And I have plenty of water. Um, 
I got to the fire station in Nicasio. And I went in and I said, Do you have any water? <laughs> and he goes, Man, yeah, you need some water, man. You're not looking so good. So he gives me a bottle of ice cold water. I twisted it off. I could barely, I was shaking. And it just went up and completely down with no swallowing. It just, the lid, my little latch there just went, <laughs> and it just poured straight through. And I'm like, can I have another one? <laughs> but uh, yeah, can you imagine? So of course, Jesus is thirsty, but he's thirsting in other ways. Now that it's completed, he's thirsting to see the fruit of his efforts. And let me just tell you, the hyssop branch and that wine vinegar, oh my goodness, the hyssop plant, of course, had to be in the story. Because in Leviticus 14, to cleanse a leper, a leper who was cleansed, a leper would stand for a sinner and leprosy sin. And so if God healed somebody, they could go to the temple and stand before the priest, and the priest did this prophetic thing that's of the cross, 100%. They take two live birds. They take one bird from the heavens and kill that bird. And over wa running water over a clay pot, and the blood would drip into the running water over the clay pot. And then, dipped into this concoction, would be a piece of cedar wood. The cross is made of cedar wood. All right? Or so they say. A scarlet thread. Now, come on. What, what was put on him? A bunch of scarlet thread. Herod's scarlet robe right then and there. Mocking him. You're a king. Here's a, scar a bunch of scarlet threads. And the hyssop branch. Hyssop was used in purifying sacrifices, but every Jew, it's Passover. In Exodus 12, the original Passover, they had to apply the blood of the lamb to the doorpost with a hyssop branch. All the Jews there, it's like hyssop, blood. Didn't John call him the lamb of God? And not reaching up there with that bloody sacrifice, there it is right there. And then you dip the live bird into, this is Leviticus 14, into the concoction and set the live bird free. So what is Jesus thirsting? He's thirsting for us to be dipped. Do you know what the word means? Baptized into the cross and be able to soar in the direction where? of the heavens. This is why he says, I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty. And one last thing. Now, come on. The one who offers to quench everybody's thirst in the world. I have living water. If anyone believes in me, you'll never be thirsty. He had to suffer almost death by dehydration. He had to know what it was like to thirst away that rich man did in hell who lifted up his eyes and said, Father Abraham, would you grant Lazarus 
the ability to dip his finger in a cup of water and take one drop and put it on my tongue. Jesus had to experience that with an answer, no. Before now, he's able to having lived that out as us and rising from the dead, conquered that. And now he's able to say, come to me and drink and you'll never thirst again. We're almost there. Last two together and we're done. When he had received the drink, so these three things came back to back very fast because the three hours of darkness started at noon, ends at three, and now he's done. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit, which is really interesting. Giving up his spirit. The son of God, he just, he can't die. So he tells his body, it, it, in the Greek, it's he dismissed himself. He dismissed his own. You know, King James, you've got to love it. King James says he gave up the ghost. <laughs> I don't know how you give up the ghost, but this is what we're talking about. And then it is finished, just beautiful. It is finished is a word that appears on receipts, and it can mean paid in full. So it's finished. So he says, listen, there's not one penny on your account, not even a half a cent. There is just nothing. You are as holy and righteous with God as the Son of God is. You have zero on your account. When he sees you, white as snow, innocent as the Son of God, it is finished. And he bowed his head. So as he's dying there in that moment, he calls out with a loud voice, and this was the victory cry, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That's Psalm 31 and verse 5. He's quoting the scripture, and commentators suggest that perhaps that was a bedtime scripture that uh, mom, dad would teach their kids to say, whether in life, whether in death, when you open your eyes in the morning, this day, Father, I commit myself. And what does it speak? It speaks of this trust that my life is not my own. And it's not up to me to take care of myself because I have a Father in heaven. That's his job. He's my good shepherd. And that's why, as if God is your shepherd, then that's why you can say, I'll lack nothing. Because the one responsible for my care is the one who spoke and the universe came into being. So the Lord Jesus can say, in life and in death, I can lay down and sleep in peace. Because he who would not spare his own son, he who did not spare his own son, right? I'm talking to us now. But he gave him up for us all. Won't he take good care of us? Can't we sleep with peace tonight and say before we put our head on the pillow, into your hands, I've committed my spirit. Let's pray together.
Father God, we just thank you for your beautiful love. As I've been saying, it quiets our hearts, God. We, we keep our minds on you and you give us, you keep us in perfect peace. Help us to take these statements to heart, to, to let them lift us up, change us, to make us more uh, trusting of you and more devoted to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So we are going to take communion together. And there are little stations where you have the bread and the cup there. And so once we get settled and prayed, um, I'm going to, as we're worshiping, you can go to the various stations and uh, serve one another, get situated. Go back to your seat and, and just pray together or pray by yourself, whoever, if you're with somebody, pray together if you'd like. And maybe you're thinking about something that God spoke to you about. Bring that up. Bring that up to him. Meet with the Lord. Privacy of your own space there. And uh, then after we take communion, uh, I'll come up and close our time in prayer. So I should explain this. If you're a believer... You don't have to be a member at the rock or anything to take communion. You just have to trust in the Lord. If you're not a believer, it just really doesn't mean anything unless something's happened in your heart. If something happened like the thief on the cross and you've had this change and you want to live for God, if you uh, look to him, yield your life, turn from your sins, trust in Christ, you'll be saved. And then you're welcome to take communion with us. And so we're going to begin now with just a quick word of prayer, and then uh, we'll be singing, and then it always takes about 45 seconds for someone to stand up, and then everybody goes. All right. So, Father God, we just look to you now. We pray that you would bless our communion time and help it to be sweet and powerful and wonderful. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to The Rocks Podcast. Our regular services are held on Sunday mornings at 8, 9.30, and 11.30 a.m. in Santa Rosa, California. If you'd like to learn more, please visit our website at cctherock.org.